This is The Legal Impact, a podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten, and today I'm joined by Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute, law.unh.edu slash S-E-L-I to learn more about that. He's also a writer over at Sportico, which we'll be diving into some of his articles today. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, AJ. So we got to kick off uh, right off the bat here with the continuing journey of EA Sports video games and uh, and NIL, which has been the saga. You've been involved with uh, Ed O'Ban, co-authored his book, the book uh, with him, uh, came out last year, I want to say. So be sure to give a plug for the book and give the super 10-second high-level look at uh, what this is based around. Yeah, so... For years, the NCAA and Electronic Arts had an arrangement where Electronic Arts would make college football and college basketball video games. The NCAA was paid. The colleges were paid for the use of their intellectual property, but the players weren't paid. And Ed O'Bannon, who you referenced, a former UCLA basketball star, NBA player, he had been retired by 2009. A buddy of his told him, hey, Ed, you're in this video game because Ed was in a classic team, a team from the mid-90s, UCLA basketball that won a national tournament. Ed was college basketball's player of the year before he became a lottery pick in the NBA. And he was surprised. He said, why would I be in a video game? I'm this, I'm, I'm this retired player, haven't played college hoops in a long time. Well, his son, his friend's son, showed him the game, and Ed was the star in the game. And Ed thought, oh, this is interesting. It's cool. I'm in a game. But Ed also thought it's a little weird that that nobody asked for his permission. The game sold for $60. And while Ed had had a lucrative basketball career, most of his teammates never made any money playing pro basketball. And they're in the game too. Now, the names weren't there, but the players looked like them. They had similar attributes and all of that. And that led to a lawsuit against the NCAA and Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts settled paying players up to $7,000. Most of them got about $1,200, $1,300 for being in video games. And then EA stopped making games because EA wanted to have games with real players, but the NCAA didn't allow name, image, and likeness. They didn't let players make money for the use of their identity. Even though they have that right as Americans, the NCAA basically said, if you use that right, you will lose your eligibility to play sports. So that ended, that that era of no NIL ended in 2021. The NCAA changed its rules because it was forced to do so by different states' laws. EA is now bringing back the game because EA can get the IP of the NCAA and colleges without running afoul of their rules. And they're now offering players $500 to be in the football game. Now, some would say, well, they, they should get more than 500 maybe, but EA can offer what it wants. And a player that doesn't get paid isn't in the game. They'll use a generic made-up player. So that's that's the uh, that's a, a, the game's coming out next year. It'll probably be very popular. I know uh, Ed O'Bannon, I talked to him. He's excited about the game coming out. And um, he likes that players are paid. That's really the way it should have been years ago. The fact that it took this long 
I think is so unnecessary. It really goes to the NCAA suppressing rights that people have as Americans. I mean, this is really about treating people fairly, treating people as Americans. Uh, uh, anyone has a right of publicity, yet college athletes weren't allowed to use it. So uh, a new era is here. Do you believe a lot of the laws that are now being put into effect at the state level are having an effect where EA is now feeling like, okay, this is the way it kind of needs to go be going forward? Yeah, I, I honestly think EA would have paid the player. I, I, I think I, I don't think EA cares about amateurism, right? EA cares about making yeah. video games. I think if they were allowed to pay the players years ago, they would have done that because these games make EA a lot of money. They're, they're really popular games. So I think EA is, is, is happy that players can now make money through NIL. Probably feels like the players should have gotten that years ago. The fact that there haven't been any games since 2013 for football, I think 2009 for basketball, it's really it's bad for the consumer. And that's because the NCAA had a set of rules that were illegal and also sort of like, Bizarre. I mean, why, why, why can't players make money? I mean, a, a, an esports player, an actor, an artist, a musician can all make money while they're in college. No one says, oh, I, I can't believe somebody got paid to be in a commercial or an esports player getting paid. No, nobody's, nobody's worried about that. Yet with college athletes, they couldn't sign endorsement deals or just get paid even modest amounts of money to promote things online, social media influencing. It's really an unnecessary and peculiar way of setting up rules. And, and really, I would say, goes against the fabric of our country. I mean, we're a country that's entrepreneurial, that values letting people as individuals use their rights. And I think the NCAA's approach to that issue was proven wrong and was and led to a worse set of facts for consumers that certainly wanted to play video games. Is the NCAA kind of in like a steady state at this point when it comes to at least this kind, this level of NIL, or is this still very much in flux? Uh, they're, they're, it's in flux. They are they're lobbying Congress to pass a federal law that would make that would create restrictions and and regulate an industry that many would say why are you regulating it i mean certainly they didn't they didn't regulate it I mean, previously they just outlawed it so now they want it regulated they want the federal government to give it seal of approval so to make it harder to sue the ncaa and there there are collectives which is a phrase used to describe alumni that have set up groups to pay college athletes NIL, it may be more pay for play. And the NCAA is worried about that, that college athletes are basically being paid ostensibly for the use of their name, image, and likeness, but in reality is recruitment. Now, Congress could do something. They probably won't. But you could also say, why doesn't the NCAA do something? They have rules against this. They don't want to use them because they don't want to get sued. You know, that's how... The world works if you try to try to enforce these rules in a lawful way, uh, and, and even if you get sued, doesn't mean you're going to lose. So, yeah, I mean, so to answer your question, no, it's in flux because the NCAA is trying to create a, a dynamic where it's in flux. But 
Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of this gets resolved by the marketplace. If, if people can make money, they're going to make money. So be sure to check out Court Justice, which is Ed O'Bannon's book, co-authored with Professor Michael McCann, um, available widely. Be sure to check that out if you want the background on this story. because It's a fascinating story. There's a lot to it, and it, it means a lot for what's going to happen going forward. All right, let's move over to another intellectual property uh, deal here, which is with the Washington Commander's trademark drive stalled by U.S. Patent Office. Commanders can't catch a break here. <laughs> no, they changed their name twice, right? And they're they're still having issues with trademark law. The, the commanders want to have a, a trademark protection, a registration specifically for Washington commanders, but the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has deemed it too close to existing trademarks or applications for trademarks, including a, a college football game that uses the word commanders. Now. The, the reality is that this isn't over for the commanders. They they can respond to this and still uh, sort of get what they want. But there are others that are squatting on some similar words that creates a problem for the commanders. And they may have to pay people off, essentially, to, to get control. And, you know, at the same time, AJ, there are all these fans that hate the, the word commanders. They, they don't like the name. They, they want to go back to the old name, which was controversial, I don't think that's going to happen, but but and the chances are they don't change the name again. But they've had some real issues with their name. That's to put it mildly. Is is this the team that I was also dealing with the roller derby club that had the same name? That was the Guardians. Oh, it was the Guardians. That was the Guardians. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a We're fascinating the- couple of years of IP and and team names. It is. It really has been. It, it's been. Yeah, I mean, because the Guardians were the Indians. The Indians changed their name to the Guardians, and. Uh, they didn't know or didn't care that there was already a roller derby team in Cleveland with the name Guardians, and that eventually they 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 reached it. But most of these things just end in a settlement. Yeah. Somebody gets paid, and and that's the end of it. Probably that's what happens with the Commanders. But they they've been spending a lot of money on IP and especially trademark law issues over the last ten years, and uh, a lot of frustrating moments for them. You figure just with regards to their bottom line, the tremendous cost that goes into these rebranding efforts is astronomical. You figure the physical facilities, the digital branding, the jerseys, the um, I mean, the merchandising that needs to happen. I mean, ultimately in the merchandising, they're probably making up a lot of the stuff because when you get a rebrand, everyone needs to buy all the new the new merch that goes along with it. But But then if you need to also be buying out all these other people that are using your trademark, it it must be problematic for them in the long run. It is. And and some of these become worse for the team because they it doesn't seem like they either they anticipate or they correctly preempt a controversy. I mean, the Guardians had to have known that there was another. I mean, literally, if you Google it, it came up. So they must have figured the roller derby team wouldn't do anything about it, but what ha- what do they do? They got all these media to write stories. I mean, it just be you, you can't get away with stuff these days. And I think a team that sort of proactively tries to address these issues before they become public controversies usually will end up saving money rather than either litigation or hiring PR firms to deal with some of this stuff. I mean, it, some of these costs seem totally avoidable. 
Yeah, it's crazy they didn't have, have a PR agency or something like that go around and then find everyone that has the same IP, especially considering in the same region, uh, it, it's it's bonkers that they didn't have, didn't come up, especially like you said, it works on the other side also. The the commander's crew can Google and look to see what's going on and make sure that there isn't, isn't do that. Anytime you start a business, that should be like the first thing you do as an entrepreneur is make sure, hey, am I picking a company name that's going to be viable in the uh, economy I'm going to be working in? Yeah, it's not hard. Right, either Google or just go to the trademark search on the government's, the USPTO's website. It's actually really takes like ten minutes. Yeah, it's sort of one of these. It's not that hard, and my guess is that they calculate that it's they either can't negotiate a deal or they don't want to initiate a conversation for fear that it's going to trigger sort of uh, ransom demands. Right? Okay, you you want this? Well, you got to pay us ten million dollars. But I think the what we've seen now with several teams is by not doing anything, by letting the controversy create, it goes on social media. It, 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 there, there's such a craving for content that you know, this is in 1987, right? This is this is like there's an inner there's the news cycles as we know instantaneous. So these types of things get quick traction, and uh, you know you wonder if teams are just sort of miscalculating. Yeah, and NDAs are only so effective. Like back in the day, like you, you would just uh, on the down low reach out to the company that has like your URL, for example, is the big thing, especially in the the dot com to bubble days, where you would just reach out to the owner of of the the domain and buy them out, give them an NDA. But I mean, you could make more off of uh, leaking it out there to to some someone who is. Uh, not as ethical <laughs> and, and it, it renders the NDA ineffective just because of that. That's right. Yeah. NDAs are only effective if they're obliged and, and if they're enforceable, you know, they, it's sometimes it's once somebody breaches it, then you got to go after them for breach of contract and it ends up becoming a pain and expensive. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. Just try to, I always say, try to preempt stuff by, by doing things, uh, behind closed doors before they become public controversies. All right. I, I want to dive into this Jackie Robinson story where uh, talking about collectibles as collateral, and it is it is a journey. I highly suggest you check out the article on Spartaco, but uh, dive into what's going on here. Yeah, so Jackie Robinson, of course, the first uh, black player in the 20th century in Major League Baseball. He broke uh, the color barrier. I mean, just a, a historical figure in uh, U.S. history, let alone U.S. sports history. Well, he signed a couple of contracts in the 1940s. One was with the minor league team for the Dodgers and then later the Dodgers themselves. And interestingly, those contracts really weren't physically protected. They were the Dodgers let basically museums exhibit them and they kept being passed around from what, what, what we know. It wasn't like the Dodgers sort of safeguarded what were really uh, incredibly valuable pieces of, of American history. And what does that mean? It, well, it led to the, a, a museum director basically giving, giving them to uh, his children as part of a will, as part of the estate. And then the children, the family sold the contracts for 750000 and then they were sold again for $2 million. And this collector's online auction company got them. And then the online auction company said, 
we, we need to raise money. So they use these contracts as collateral to raise $6 million. And then what happened? Well, A, the government for, for related but, but separate issues argued that they were committing securities fraud. The Dodgers wrote them a letter saying, hey, they actually belong to us, those contracts. That, they're part of our history. Uh, and and then moreover, the Dodgers assigned whatever rights they have in them to the Jackie Robinson Foundation, which is at least created by uh, the late Jackie Robinson's family. And they're arguing now that they have a right to these contracts, which are which are worth millions of dollars, right? They're yeah. they're like, I mean, Jackie Robinson, right? One of the most historic figures around. And the the long story short is that now the the SEC is going after this auction company. These investors who gave that auction company money, six million bucks, say, well, we're going to collect the collateral because the company is in default. The Dodgers say, no, they're ours, and we've given them to the Jackie Robinson Foundation. And the judge is saying, I'm not sure. (laughs) The judge is basically saying, I don't know. This has to go to a jury. Let them look at this. This is really complicated. And there's not an obvious answer. Yeah, it's fascinating to consider that something like this could go to a jury. I mean, when you if you're just an outsider to the legal system and you think about a jury trial, you always think criminal and like someone's been murdered, something's been stolen, something atrocious has happened uh, physically to someone's being or stolen or something. It's like, no, this this is a multi million dollar issue of. Of, of ownership and contracts that could end up going in front of a jury. I mean, what sort of, I mean, how, how do you get a jury ready to do something like that? Yeah, they, they have to look at, I mean, so some of the evidence that's already come up is the Dodgers policy of retaining records that they apparently didn't, apparently early physical contracts were not valued. Um, also, they had a bankruptcy about 10 years ago where they didn't list any these historical physical contracts, contracts which suggest it wasn't at the top of their mind. Uh, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, what, what it sort of gives a window into collectibles that they weren't really cherished like they are today. And uh, that becomes relevant because it goes to you know, who owned these things. And the Dodgers, or were they even stolen from the Dodgers? I mean, that has come up. Were were the Dodgers were they taken by this by a museum and not returned? Well, there's no evidence the Dodgers asked for them back. Did the Dodgers abandon them? Yeah. Did they assign them? Did they loan them? Did they gift them? They all have different legal significances. So the jury's going to have to look at testimony. And of course, the people from the 1940s and 50s are no longer around, right? I mean, you know. This is that we're dealing with kind of written records of things. I mean, there are expert witnesses in this case regarding handling of records. I mean, Jackie Robinson obviously is not around and he's one of, I mean, what, what, what were his wishes with these contracts? Who knows, right? Um, why did the foundation not pursue them earlier? Maybe they didn't know. I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting. And, and uh, again, millions of dollars are there. And if I'm an investor and I loan all that money, I want those contracts, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and if that money got spent, I mean, yeah. oh gosh. Yeah, right. I, I mean, are there a lot of cases like that, this in the past? Like the only big collectibles thing I that immediately comes to my pop culture mind is OJ, but that's a totally different situation. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, the opposite, right? Someone reviled, uh, not not cherished. There's not a whole lot of case law on this. I mean, there's there's case law about collateral, but usually collateral is not in the form of an asset where questions of ownership come up later. I mean, it, it, it suppose it can happen with real estate where there are liens against properties, things like that. But to, you know, collectible stuff is kind of a newer industry, especially we've seen the values of collectibles take off and the financial interests involved go up along with it. So uh, this case is it's in the Southern District of New York. It, it, it's, it will be quoted, it will be cited, and maybe it gets to an appellate court. Who knows? Uh, pretty interesting that, you know, it's interesting because it's a, it's a case about this famous cherished player and the contract he signed and, and the fact that people didn't, it didn't seem like the contract was really given the respect it was owed. But then you read the some of the pleadings and it's like, well, they weren't, people didn't take care of these things. It wasn't like a contract was considered all that special. It's just a piece of paper. All right, Professor Michael McCann, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute, check out law.unh.edu slash S-E-L-I. Be sure to check out his articles on Spartaco and follow Professor McCann on Twitter at McCann Sports Law. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To upstart word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcasts.